So, last week we finished 1 Corinthians 8, and we were talking mostly about food sacrificed to idols. To keep in mind what's going on here, Paul is answering a letter that they wrote to him. They asked him about food sacrificed to idols, and they told him about division in the church, and on and on. He's sort of responding to a letter we don't have. Chapter 9 is Paul getting really grumpy. Of course, you ought to ask, how could you tell? Paul seems grumpy a lot. This section is talking about compensation of clergy. And you've all talked to your secular friends who have said that the church is just in it for the money. Greedy, 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 greedy. They're always just asking us for money. And in support of that position, you have a lot of these mega preachers who fly around on private jets and live in multi-million dollar mansions and so forth, and they get all of that through the preaching of the gospel, quote unquote. That opulence rubs a lot of people the wrong way, and I can understand that. I'm not defending it. I'm just saying it rubs a lot of people the wrong way. From the tone of chapter 9 in 1 Corinthians, it feels like one of the things that's been said in that letter that they are sending him is Paul is just in it for the money. He's trying to fleece you guys. The church doesn't want anything but your money. So it sounds very much like he's responding to an accusation of that kind. We don't have that letter, so I'm just speculating, obviously. But he goes from talking about food sacrificed to idols, then he goes into this rant about ministers being supported by their preaching. It's kind of a non sequitur. I will suggest that it probably has to do with the original subject of the letter, which is division in the church. Because remember, we started off clear back in the first chapters, him talking about hubris and division in the church. So I imagine there is probably somebody in the church that is sowing dissent about Paul and opining that Paul is a charlatan that's just out to police people. But as I say, we don't have that letter, so that's an inference. So, chapter 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Yeshua, our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least to you I am. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So it reads as somebody has questioned his authority, somebody has questioned his calling, and that question seems to revolve around money. So verse 3, this is my defense to those who would examine them. Obviously then there is someone who is questioning his ministry, his authority, his apostleship, and he's saying, all right, this is my answer to that. Verse 4. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? As do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? What he's obviously saying is there are other ministers of the gospel out there, and those other ministers of the gospel are in fact getting their sustenance from the offerings of the churches where they plant and the churches where they preach. Side note, as you all know, when we set this place up, 
18 years ago, we made a decision that we would not pay the staff, which is fine, and I'm fine with that. I'm also fine with churches where they do pay the staff. Either way is perfectly acceptable, and Paul will make that case in just a minute. So I don't sneer and look down on ministers who gain their living from operating a church. I mean, it it can be a full-time job and deserves to be paid, no problem. Also don't have a problem with ministers who get their sustenance somewhere else. That's okay too. So rhetorical question, is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? In other words, am I making this up myself on my own authority? And on his previous claim when he's talking about marriage, he's very careful to distinguish what his opinion is and what God's word says. And he says, God says this, therefore that's not open to negotiation. This is my advice as someone who is reliable, but this is not a commandment from the Lord. So his rhetorical question then is, is this Paul talking or is this God talking? So verse 8 again. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And that's a quote from Deuteronomy. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more. So several things going on there. And he will also make the argument, the temple and the tabernacle, in just a minute. So what he's saying is, anybody who performs a service for the Lord has a perfect right to gain sustenance on the basis of that service. Biblically, the idea of an ox being a servant, if you will, is perfectly sound exegesis. So for Paul here to say, even an ox, when it treads out the grain, has the right to eat of the product of his labor. So I am laboring spiritually. Do I then not have the right to profit materially? That's his argument. So let's pick it up at verse 12. If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Messiah. So first off, if others share this rightful claim on you, which is to say, if some itinerant preacher with a three-day pass and a briefcase comes through and talks to you, somebody like Apollos, and he takes up a collection to cover his traveling expenses and his lodging and all that kind of stuff. Perfectly acceptable. So what Paul is saying is you've had these people come through and they've taken up collections and so forth. Do I not have the same right? In fact, I have more of a right because I'm the one that planted the church. And then he says, nevertheless, we don't make use of this right. So Paul has made... It is practice wherever he goes to be self-supporting. Hence the business of him being a tent maker. And he has made it his practice 
that wherever he goes, he's going to be self-supporting. And his motivation in that is that nobody should be able to say that the only reason he is preaching is in order to support himself. That's his rationale. And I started this off with, we all have examples of, A, people who regard the church as simply being self-serving and fleecing the sheep. We also have examples of, I will use the word televangelists, although I'm sure not all of them that way, but there are enough of them who are that way that it's become a cliché. Basically, they really appear to be sideshow barkers who throw a little bit of God stuff in there, but the whole idea is to entertain and get money. Paul has said, I have made a conscious decision that I will not do that in order that nobody can make the claim that that's what I'm doing. So, verse 13. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial things. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. You remember when God set up the temple and the sacrificial system? God said very clearly, all right, all of the sacrifices belong to me. Then he says, "Uh, I got no use for barbecue. So what I want you to do is take these sacrifices that you give to me and I want you to use them to support the Levites and the priests who operate my temple. So this is my wages to them, not your wages to them. And it's real important that you understand the transaction here. The transaction is not from the person making the offering to the priest or the Levite. The transaction is from the person making the offering to God and then from God to the priest or the Levite. Now, having said that, even priests and Levites got that confused at various points. Remember the story of Hopi and Phineas, the sons of Eli the priest and Samuel, where they lost track of that transaction, and they were going in and coercing worshipers for the best parts of the offering. So instead of recognizing the transaction was worshiper to God, God to the priest, they were making the transaction between the worshiper and the priest, and they were taking the best part. And God got really chapped at them, and they died. So having said what I just said, understand that even Israel sometimes loses track of the order of transactions. So what Paul is saying is God has set up the temple's economy so that the people who work in the temple get some of their sustenance from the temple and that that's perfectly okay. And he's saying, furthermore, that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from by the gospel. There's nothing wrong with that. Verse 15. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. In other words, the fact that I'm preaching the gospel is not directly my choice. Remember the transaction that happened on the road to Damascus, where the Lord blinded him and knocked him on his ass, or off his ass. What Yeshua said is, you're going to be the one that's going to preach. So he is not somebody that has just sort of wandered in and volunteered because he thought, 
preaching the gospel was a really good idea. He's under compulsion. So he can't boast in preaching the gospel because that's what he has been commanded to do. So what can he boast in? I'm not profiting from it. Verse 17. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. So he has a right that he has consciously decided not to make use of, and that's what is giving him grounds for boasting. Verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I become a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. I'll stop there for a minute. So what he's saying is he has set himself up so he can move freely in any community. For example, when he goes back to Jerusalem for his final trip back to Jerusalem when he gets arrested and sent to Rome, he goes to the synagogue with James. James says, all right, what you need to do is you need to show everybody that you walk orderly according to Torah. And you need to take a sacrifice. And Paul says, you bet. And he arranges to get a sacrifice, and he's heading off because he is a good Jew, which he is. So what he's saying is, I am setting myself up so that I can move freely in any community in order to be able to preach the gospel. And I want to be able to preach the gospel in terms that my audience can receive. So when I am among Jews, I preach one way. When I am among Gentiles, I preach a different way. When I'm among pagans, I preach a different way because each audience will hear the message from his own point of view. So I've got to figure out how I preach in each of those audiences so that my message will be received. Now, there's a parenthetical thing in verse 21. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, parenthesis, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Does anybody have a different rendition of not being outside the law of God, but but under the law of Christ in his translation. So some of it breaks it up with commas, some of it breaks it up with parentheses. But he's talking about how does he present himself to those who are lawless. What I have in my translation is in parentheses, but under the law of Christ. And many of your Sunday churchmen will make a distinction between the law of God and the law of Christ. There is no distinction in that sentence. I am under God's law as interpreted by Messiah. So the idea here is not that the law has been done away with and Messiah has done something new and different that has never been done before. I don't believe he ever did. Now back up to verse 20. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law. So he says he is obeying the law of God, but he is not under the law. 
So what I am inferring that he's talking about there is what we call oral Torah, and what the Jews call oral Torah, rabbinic law, which is to say the stuff that the rabbis or the Jews have added to the law of Moses. And he says, I'm not under that. But I follow that when I'm in the company of Jews so as not to offend them so that they may hear my words. I mean, there's all sorts of things that the Orthodox do that are not strictly Torah. And so what Paul is saying is when I'm in the company of Jews, I do all that stuff because I know it so that they will hear my words. But I don't regard it as authoritative. What I regard as authoritative is the law of God as interpreted by Messiah. And you remember in the Gospels, Yeshua very frequently duped it out with the Pharisees over their additions to Torah. You guys have added stuff to the law. And so what Paul is saying is, I'm not under that junk, but I follow it anyway when I am preaching to Jews so that they'll hear me. Contrary to what I have heard a lot of Sunday Christians say, this is not a condemnation of Torah. It's not what he's saying at all. And you've got to understand, we spend a lot of time studying this stuff from the perspective of Torah. Your Sunday friends probably spend an equal amount of time studying this from the perspective of the New Testament. And if you don't have a foundation in Torah, the New Testament reads completely different. And they care, they're devout, they're serious about this stuff, they love God, and I will suggest that they're simply incorrect. 22. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I may save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Full stop. I become all things to all people. That is not saying that I don't have any standards. There are people who read that and say, no standards. And that's how you get Easter bunnies and Christmas trees and all sorts of stuff coming into the church. And Paul is not saying that he is without standards. He can't be without standards if he is going to be an apostle. I mean, it's sort of a contradiction in terms. What he's doing is he is figuring out where his audience is. He's meeting them there, and he is leading them then into the gospel. But the goal is to bring them into the gospel, not to go native. Verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So what he's saying is, hey guys, you all know that if you're training for an athletic event, you don't do everything that your body wants to do. Because if you do everything that your body wants to do, you will become fat and roly-poly and not competitive. Everybody, when he is running a race, disciplines his body because that's the only way to get it in shape. And so what he's saying here is it's the same thing with the gospel. In order 
to preach the gospel and be effective, I have to exercise discipline. And part of the discipline I am exercising is I have decided not to make my living in the gospel. That's discipline. Just like an athlete could eat all the ice cream he wants, but he wouldn't probably win the race. So there's no law that says he can't eat ice cream. But the iron law of competition and physics and anatomy says if you eat ice cream, you're not going to win the race. So a lot of ice cream. Chapter 10. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Messiah. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now you have to read that as a continuation of, I discipline my body and keep myself under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And then I want you to know, brothers, and so forth, that in fact, you had believers in the wilderness who were in the very presence of God, who were baptized by going through the sea and so forth, and in the end, they were disqualified. And Paul is saying, I don't want to fall into that category. When the spies came back and Caleb and Joshua said, we can take them, they didn't believe it. And because of that, God decreed that they would not go into the land. Verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's a reference to the golden calf. Verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. That's a reference to Cosby and Zimri and Phineas, where, where the Moabite women came in and tempted, and Phineas frog stuck a couple of them. So that's a reference to that. So he's referring to the golden calf, and he's also referring to Moabite women. Verse 9, we must not put Messiah to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Remember the flying, fiery serpents? You know, Moses had to make the brass serpent on a pole, and that was because... They put God to the test and didn't believe him. Verse 10, Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. I would imagine that's probably Korah's rebellion. Verse 11, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. So what was the escape that God provided? I think that's a reference to the brass serpent. Because, remember, we had the grumbling and so forth, and God sent fiery serpents into the camp, and everybody that was bitten by them died. Moses prayed to God, and God had Moses make a brass serpent and hoist it up on a pole, and so that when anyone was bitten by a serpent, he looked at the brass serpent and lived. Notice that God did not remove the serpents. If you look at the fiery serpent, if you will, as a metaphor for temptation to sin, 
they came into the camp because of the sin of Israel. God in that incident did not remove the serpents from the camp. The serpents continued to bite people. And those who would then look upon the brass serpent on the pole would live and those who would not die. So what he's saying is the things that happened to the nation in the wilderness are different in circumstance, but they're not different in degree, I would guess, to the temptations that you guys are suffering. God provided a way out of it, and he will do the same for you. So verse 14 now. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Messiah? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Messiah? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all have to take of one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord in the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord in the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And this starts with flee from idolatry. And the first instance that was in the wilderness is the golden calf. So you had a bunch of people who worshiped the golden calf. And it says they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play and they were destroyed. And so what Paul is saying here is if you participate in the sacrifices that are offered in pagan temples, you are essentially doing the same thing. You cannot share the table of a demon and the table of Messiah simultaneously. Doesn't matter how pure your heart is. And remember when we were going through the unfortunate incident with the golden calf, most of them did not believe that they were worshiping an idol. What they thought they were doing, that Moses had disappeared. And they were out in the wilderness with nobody there who was an intermediary between themselves and God, which is what Moses was. So what they were trying to do is construct a technological solution to get back into communication with God. That's what they were trying to do. God didn't see it that way. And so everyone who was in fact worshiping the idol died. Those who were deceived did not. So what Paul is saying is don't mess with that stuff. And we went through this a couple times ago when we were talking about food sacrificed idols. So I'm sort of going through it quickly because we've already done it. So now 10.23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the marketplace without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner, then you are disposed to go. Eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience, I do not mean your conscience, but his. So what he's saying is, if someone tells you that the meat has been sacrificed to idols, 
and you who are known as a believer partake in it, what you are doing is you are telling the unbeliever who has offered you the meat that you have no standards. So what you've done is you have destroyed your witness. And again, he's not saying that you will necessarily be defiled, but those around you will be. So again, 29, I do not mean your conscience, but his. Well, why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? It's a rhetorical question. Of course your liberty is in some ways determined by the conscience of another. Now, what you need to figure out is whether that conscience is reasonable. Because there are people who will tell you, well, I identify as a strawberry tart. And you're just going to have to treat me like I'm a strawberry tart. You can look at such a person and say, you're full of strawberries. You're a nut. I have no need to treat your ideas with respect. So don't get me wrong. He is not saying that in all cases, somebody else's beliefs are binding on you. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is if you have something that impacts on your ability to present the gospel, then you need to stop and say, huh, if I eat food sacrificed to an idol, then what's going to happen is I am going to be in the way of this person ever coming to Christ because he will see me as having no standards in the Lord. Therefore, I will not eat. Verse 30. If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? And what I will suggest is going on here, by the way, this food sacrificed to idols. In this letter that we do not have, someone has written in there that he has seen Paul eating food sacrificed to idols. That is what I think he is reacting to. And again, we don't have that letter, so it's only inference. So what he's saying is, somebody invites you into his house, you don't need to inquire about the source of the meat. And so apparently what has happened is Paul got invited to eat with someone. Someone else knew that the source of the meat was sacrificial and saying, oh, Paul, Paul ate meat sacrificed to idols. And what Paul is saying is, I would never eat meat sacrificed to idols knowingly. I think that's what's going on. So verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved and then be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's the end of that paragraph. So the idea is not no standards. The idea is fit into the community as best you can while maintaining your conscience so that you might be able to present the gospel.